That's the one we introduced last week, right? Yes. And I, th I, I said to Kevin this week, I just really appreciate the song. I, I always love when we get new songs and that just um, wonderful song about the truth of Christ being in us. As Christians today, I think when we read the book of Acts, at least one of the potential responses as we read Acts is to be tempted to sort of wish we were there, to somehow wish we could get transported back in, in time. Because as we read Acts, we see apostles and miracles and signs and wonders, and we see so much happening that is dramatic and powerful and this remarkable level of unity that's built up in the community of believers. There's so much that we see that is attractive to us as believers in Jesus Christ. The body is, is growing. The gospel is spreading. Uh, there is so much that is evidence of the work of God's spirit through the lives of his people. But the book of Acts also teaches the simplicity of life in the local church. It also shows us that life as believers in Jesus Christ is as brothers and sisters living through the highs and the lows and the challenges and the struggles. But in the end, what our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing 2,000 years ago really isn't all that much different from how we are living out the Christian life today, that the pattern that we see here is one that helps us in life and ministry. We, we certainly may pause and take note of some of the dramatic moments of the, the movement of the Spirit. The, the passage we read last week with the visions that Peter and Cornelius received, sort of um, monumental moments in the life of the church. We see these things, and yet throughout Acts, it's also a reminder that, that the early disciples simply followed Jesus, just like you and I are called to do, to be followers of Jesus Christ. And so we are in Acts chapter 11, and we're going to see the last half or so of, of Acts chapter 11 this morning. Let me just set the context, and I, I think it's really helpful every now and then to pause in the book of Acts and remember that Acts covers a long period of history. There's a tendency when we read Acts we can probably do it in a couple of sittings, two, three, four sittings. You could sit down and, and go through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts and feel like it, it's all sort of a whirlwind. It's all just a matter of a couple of years that, that all of this just unfolds, and it's just kind of this rapid-fire period of time. But the reality is, from the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ until the end of the book of Acts. So we go from Acts chapter 1 when Christ ascends into heaven to Acts chapter 28 when Paul is brought to Rome then as a prisoner. It's a span of about 30 years that we're covering in the book of Acts. Historians agree that the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ somewhere around the year 32, 33, somewhere in that vicinity Paul, it's estimated, arrived in Rome around the year 60, and then Acts 28 says he spends two years in Rome, kind of under house arrest, where he uses that as a place to preach the gospel. And so we are moving through three decades, from the early 30s to the early 60s, as we move through the book of Acts. So again, when we, when we read and we just see these things happening, it's not just months, weeks apart. There are years that pass in some of these instances, and Luke doesn't pinpoint all this with a calendar like, like we might like. Paul's life probably is what 
helps us most with the timeline and his reflections in the book of Galatians, some of the stuff that he says in Galatians 1 and 2 is what helps us to understand this timeline. And that is, we know that in Acts 8, he is present when persecution begins against the church. Remember the, the stoning of, of Stephen, the church's first martyr, and Paul is there and he is, Saul he is identified at that point and he is there giving approval to this. The next couple of years, he is involved in leading the persecution of the church. Um, and then he is gloriously saved on the road to Damascus, something that we read about in Acts chapter 9. Um, then he tells us that there is a, a three-year period after that in which he is off in the Arabian wilderness, presumably taking the, the, the great Old Testament knowledge that he has, and God's Spirit is now ministering to him to now see Christ in that Old Testament teaching that he had taken in in such a legalistic fashion. And he is during this period beginning to learn what becomes the foundation of Christian doctrine, what helps us through the book of Romans and others, that all of that theological training is going on as Saul is out in, in the wilderness and is being taught by the Spirit of God. In Galatians 2, he says that 14 years passed between his salvation and a second trip to Jerusalem. That's where we are when we get to Acts chapter 11. That seems to be where we sync up. You'll see at the end of Acts chapter 11, there is a visit by Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, and that's probably this one. And so I'm going to read uh, Acts 11. We'll read verse 19. We're going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll walk back through it. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming, upon, uh, coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This famine that, that's mentioned here at the end of this account is sent down to us by historians as well. It, it's recorded about in, in history from that era, somewhere around the year 45, under the reign of Emperor Claudius, um, there is some what appears to be massive flooding that goes on in Egypt. Egypt is a, is a fertile, sometimes called the breadbasket of the Roman Empire because of the fertile land there. Uh, the Nile provides a lot of um, watering to the area, but, but when it's overdone, obviously it destroys the crops. Uh, the Nile also provided easy access out to the Mediterranean and then on to the Roman Empire. Um, and, and travel and trade and all of that could be carried on. So when something takes place in Egypt, when there is a 
disruption to the, the, the distribution system. We, we've got all these terms that, that seem like they're familiar to us from this past year when, when food and supplies and all the things we wondered about, if these things were ever going to come back again and if the whole distribution chain is, is, is messed up. That's what happens at this point. Uh, when Egypt is deluged, this famine then hits and it's going to have a couple of years of impact on people because of the, the need to regrow crops and those who are, are poor are going to deal with higher food costs and all of the things related to that. So this is somewhere around the mid-40s, 15, 16, 17 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And again, I just, I just want to point that out just so that historically we're putting this in its setting so that we don't think Jesus rose, he ascended, they went to Judea, Samaria, and, and then on to Cornelius, and the next stop was Antioch, and it all happened in, in, in that first year or two. This is now a number of years down the road, 16, 17 years that the gospel is now spreading to Antioch. What happened there in Antioch has its roots back at the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 8, and he says it right at the beginning there in, in chapter 11, verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen. The early persecution in Jerusalem sends believers all over the place, including out into these other regions that he mentions. They are scattered and sent preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to just have you look at a map of the region. The highlighted, as you see, the pinkish color is greatest concentration of Jewish population. Not so much focused on that as I just wanted you to see where Antioch is, north Eastern corner of the Mediterranean, the Jewish population in that area around Judea. There you go. Thank you for the arrow. Appreciate that, Frankie. The Grand Antioch. Um, obviously, the, the coast, the Mediterranean coast, is Judea. You move up from Jerusalem to Antioch, and this is the area where we are now in. It's Cyrene, one of the places. Cyprus would be the island underneath the word Sidon. And so it's from those places that believers have come, and they have gone to Antioch to begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Antioch is a major city. It's it's inland, it's not actually right on the port, but it's connected to a river, so it's a trade and commerce center, and because of its location, is considered by historians to be the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Behind Rome and Alexandria came Antioch as sort of this hub of, of trade and people passing through. Significant place. Acts 11.19 says that the gospel spreads to all of these lands, including to Antioch. But it also says in, in verse 19 that those who went and proclaimed were speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so the, the spread of the gospel is Jewish believers from Jerusalem under persecution going to other Jewish people, presumably to, to synagogues and to places where they connect much as, as Paul does throughout his ministry, connecting with people who should have had an anticipation of a Messiah, and they are going and saying the Messiah has come, and they are preaching. But then verse 20 connects to verse 19. It says, but it could be and, there's a, a connector there, some of them, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. That term Hellenist may um, sound familiar in Acts chapter 6, if you remember the, the formation of the, the group that was serving in the church because of the division between what Acts 6 says is the Hellenists and the Hebrews. In Acts 6, the term primarily is used to distinguish two different groups of Jewish people. The word Hellenist in its simplest meaning is Greek speaking. They, they are people whose primary language is Greek. Their culture is, is Greek. They are of, of, of a Greek background for the most part. And so in Acts 6, 
the contrast is you've got this group of believers, Jewish believers, and some are Hebrews. They speak Hebrew. They have lived in and around Judea and Jerusalem. All of their traditions are rooted there around Jerusalem. The Hellenists are those who have been Jews who were scattered over the years and who live in all different places and who come back to Jerusalem for pilgrimages, and they have gotten saved. They primarily speak Greek, and they are Greek culture. They are sort of the modern folks, and there's this ethnic cultural sort of clash point between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Say all that because when Luke uses the term here, he's not distinguishing between two different branches of Judaism. He's making his contrast very clear when he says in 19, they spoke only to those who were Jews, but then in verse 20, but some of them spoke to Hellenists. He's using Hellenist in its most simplest meaning. He's speaking to the, the Greek speakers, to the Gentiles. While all of the focus predominantly had been on Jews, some went and they went to Antioch and they began to speak to Gentiles. They began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the passage goes on to tell us that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Church at Antioch then becomes this pivotal place that we'll see several times more in the book of Acts, a, 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 even ascending church. Because of its great location, because of its large population, it becomes a, a, a focal point from which Believers go forth, and they go to other places and proclaim the gospel. But it began, it starts very simply. There's no description of any kind of particular miracle here. There may have been signs and wonders that accompany them. We see that again throughout Acts as, as a way of confirming one's message. But all that it describes here is faithful men left the places that they lived and went and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went and taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God used that and birthed a church in Antioch and saved many Gentiles from out of what would have been a very pagan, very idolatrous sort of culture. Multiple gods. There were, there were temples to gods, Greek gods there in, in Antioch. It was a city that was given over to polytheism, and, and here comes the preaching of the gospel, and God saves through it. Once that starts, as we read here, word gets back to the, the church in Jerusalem, sort of the, the mother local church, if you will, and, and they send a representative the presumption is you, you send the representative in part to confirm that what you hear that's going on there is accurate and true, to make sure that what's being preached is, is a sound doctrine gospel, and to see what God is doing. So you're, you're sending a representative from the church to just sort of make sure things are being done decently and in order and that it is the true gospel that is being preached. And so it's Barnabas who is sent to go and see this firsthand. We met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4 uh, when the church is new and in Jerusalem. His real name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas. They call him son of encouragement. That is his nickname. So that, that already tells us something about Barnabas, that, that nobody called him Joseph. They referred to him as that encouraging one, as that one who was known to bring encouragement into a, a conversation or a situation. And so Barnabas is sent. Barnabas if you remember, came from Cyprus when the, the, the new believers in Jerusalem were selling land and, and possessions in order to help other believers who were struggling financially. It says Barnabas sold a piece of land, and, and he put that in to, to help others, to support others who were poor. 
In chapter 9, we see Barnabas again. Saul, the persecutor of the church, has just been dramatically saved by God on the road to Damascus. And Saul starts showing up, and, and believers are terrified because this is the guy who has led the attack house to house to take Christians into custody. And who comes alongside Saul but Barnabas? says that Barnabas essentially puts his arm around Paul, uh, Saul, sees, sees what God is doing in his life, and, and goes to Jerusalem and goes to the apostles and vouches for God's work. And so Barnabas just becomes this source of encouragement and strength who comes alongside people who are in need and brings exhortation. And so he is the one who he just loves people. He's, he's one of those people that, that just brings encouragement into your life. You, you can think, I'm sure, of a Barnabas that has meant something in your life. Somebody who is serious about caring for other believers, who, who loves on them, who is there with them, who speaks exhortation into their lives. Barnabas is that kind of brother. Here's what I want to do for the rest of our time as we think about this. This, this passage, in many ways, is really simple. Narratives can be that way, where it just it tells you what happened. Many got saved, they were taught, they grew, the church did fine, and, and, and life moved on. And we could say, well, this is a pretty simple, sort of clear-cut passage. I, I want us to think about how God uses Barnabas, how he takes this faithful disciple and uses him in Antioch. Because, I, again, I, I said to you this at the beginning, I think in Acts sometimes we, we sort of get caught in, in being wowed by the work of the Spirit and the signs and the wonders and the visions and the dramatic moments that Luke reports for us that are monumental in the book of Acts. And sometimes we sort of race past the simplicity of what's happening here. And what's happening here is simply a faithful, loving servant doing the work of ministry. Barnabas is showing you and I what life looks like in the local church. You and I are not called to be apostles. We believe apostles had a specific function at a specific point in time in church history. You and I are called to, to be like Barnabas, to be those kind of faithful servants who encourage and minister. And so I just I want us to think about this this morning, how God uses Barnabas. I'm going to take note of four character qualities in his life and four works of ministry that he does. None of these are flashy, none of these are new, but all of these are imitatable by you and I. These are all things that you and I can look at and go, yeah, I, I can be praying for God to do that through me. This is just faithful, a, a faithful man showing us what faithful ministry looks like so that faithful men and women today would carry out the same thing. He is a good example for us of God's work. So the character qualities. Barnabas was joyful, he was good, he was given over to God, and he was humble. Let's start with the joyful part. He gets to Antioch. It says his, he, he is the eyes and the ears of the Jerusalem church. They send him there for that specific purpose. Go see what's going on in Antioch. My human sort of presumption at this moment is a guy like Barnabas put in that task is going to go with perhaps something of a skeptical sort of watching eye just to, to check and listen to see what they're preaching, to sort of examine what's going on and, and, and take it in and, and see the reality of what's happening. Maybe just a little bit of skepticism. And yet, what does it say? Barnabas sees what God is doing and he is glad. He rejoices. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Barnabas 
doesn't miss a beat. As he is there in Antioch, he is realizing this is God's grace at work. I am seeing God change lives, and he is rejoicing. There is this deep sense of gladness in him at, at witnessing what God is doing in their midst. If, if there is anything, anything in terms of attitude and outlook that should define us as believers in Jesus Christ, it should be our joy. It should be the fact that we are a joyous people in all circumstances. It doesn't mean giddy and laughing at everything, but it means an inner sense of, of satisfaction and contentment and gladness at the grace of God. And, and, and if there is one thing that sets us apart from a bitter and angry world, it should be that we are a joyful people because we know what God has done for us and we know what the future holds for us. We know that our, our God is in control and that he is sovereign and we can rest in that. That's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. Oh, really? Monday? All the time? Rejoice always. Rejoice. Rejoice. He says, again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord because of who you are in Christ. It's exactly the truth we were singing about just a few minutes ago of the, of the fact that Christ is in me, the hope of glory. I, I have the Savior of the world dwelling in me through his spirit. I, I should be able in any circumstance to look and say, I see evidence of God's grace. I see life. I see breath. I see hope. I, I, I see evidences of God's grace, and that should make me Glad. Yes, we should be sober about the age in which we live. We, sh we, we are right to be righteously, if properly done, righteously angry at sin and evil. Most of the time we, we tend to struggle with doing that well, that, that anger, and we, we probably go a little too far one way or the other. But, but there's room there. But we still should be a joyous people because we see God's grace at work. Barnabas is glad Secondly, Barnabas, it says, is good. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the spirit and of faith. Barnabas served people. What, what, what defines a good man? First of all, he's a believer in Jesus Christ. There is no inherent goodness in people apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. So he has been set apart by Christ. He belongs to Christ. But this, this goodness, how do we see that? Well, we see it in a guy who is ever aware of others, who's, who's looking to the needs of others, who gets to Jerusalem when the church is, is, is new and he sees people in need, sells some property and sets the money down, sees Saul and he begins to see in Saul God's work of grace and he takes him alongside and cares for him. When the church was terrified of Saul, Barnabas comes and puts his arm around him and said, God's changing this man. That's what a, that's what a good man or woman does. They're not looking to knock people down. When they correct someone, they, they, they do so gently for the purpose of restoring that person, for the purpose of helping that, that person grow in, in the goodness of, of Jesus Christ. They strive to be mature, and they strive to help others grow in maturity. And, and, and helping others takes patience and kindness. Simple thing. Do other people, I'm not, I, I, if, if 
if you've got any ounce of humility, you're going to answer this question probably to the negative. But just try to be honest with yourself. It's a simple question. Do other people see you as a good man or a good woman, as someone who will speak truth to them, as someone who will love them? And, and, and care for them in, in difficult situations as someone who will walk alongside with compassion and grace. As someone who says, I'll, I'll pray for you and then actually does pray for you. That, that's the simplicity of, of what we're seeing here in Barnabas. Our culture applauds people who are good at what they do and who get results, who do good things that, that, that are measured as good by the culture. God desires men and women who are simply good people and what is our model for goodness? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is to, to, to live and walk and have compassion like Christ. It is to care for others and love others and serve others like Christ. So Barnabas is joyful. He's good. Third thing is he's given over to the, the Spirit. He's given over to God. And that's, again, verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. We've looked at this before in, in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be yielding one's control, to be yielding control of one's life over to God's leading, God's direction, God's spirit. That's what it is to be filled with the spirit. It is to surrender personal ambition in order to, to follow after Christ and to please him. And, and, and the biblical way to gauge if you are full of the Spirit and full of faith, is simply to, to go to Galatians chapter 5 and, and look at the fruit of the Spirit and, and look and say, is this evident in my life? Are, are these sorts of qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are these, are these sorts of things being nurtured in my life and evident to others? Because that's the, that's the sign, that's the gauge of being filled by His Spirit. Is your life marked by loving God, loving others, by promoting peace, by, by responding in peace when, when there's agitation? Do, do the people who are close to you know you as someone who is gentle, someone who responds with a, a, a kindness and a gentleness even in hard situations? Do you show restraint and self-control or are you impulsive and just rushing forward and, and, and just going after things and lacking self-control, focused on satisfying your own longings. Those are evidences of being filled with the Spirit, full of faith. Do you have faith to trust that God is working for your good and His glory in all circumstances? Do I, I quote that, Romans 8, 28, right? Do I, do I believe it, that God truly is at work for my good and His glory as he's accomplishing his purposes in me. Joyful, good, given over to God. Fourth, hum humble. God generates humility in Barnabas. Verse 24 and 25 are, are connected. You see at the beginning of 25, the word so could be and. It says, um, a great many people, end of verse 24, were added to the Lord, so or and. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Church at Antioch, Barnabas gets there, and he is glad. He sees God's grace at work, but, but he is quickly realizing this church is growing. God is doing a work. God's favor is on this church, and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And what does he do? It's about a four-day journey, maybe a little bit more than that, from Antioch to Tarsus. He goes, I'm going to go get Saul. That, that brother who he came alongside of years before, who, who already showed evidence of, of faithful ministry and a love for people, 
Barnabas says, I'm going to get help. And he goes and he, he gets Saul and he brings him back to help establish that church, to help him with the teaching and the ministry and the coming alongside of people. There, there's no pride of ownership by Barnabas, no sense of, I got this, I can lead this, it's, all, it's, it's under control, I can handle it. Uh, you know, the, these new believers are all going to look up to me as, as the guy. No, he, he quickly goes for help. Are you quick to involve other people in helping you in ministry? Are you eager to bring other people alongside and to share the work of ministry with them, to disciple them in, in, in doing the work of ministry and teach them in that process? Are you quick to recognize that you were meant to have help, that you and I are not called to go it alone, that we need brothers and sisters to come alongside of us? Are you eager to seek wisdom? to build partnerships in ministry for others to come alongside. By God's grace, Barnabas is joyful, good, given over to God, and he is humble. Now, four things that he does in ministry that we see in this passage. He exhorted them, he stayed with them, he taught them, and he served them. Whenever, whenever you may be tempted, and, and I've heard believers say these things, I've, I've certainly had my seasons when I've thought through these same things and wrestled with them, say things like, I, I just, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do in the body of Christ. I don't know my place. I don't know what my role is. I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm waiting for someone to, to tell me what to do. Then, then let's start here. This is, this is just simple, edifying, wonderful ministry 101. What we're seeing from Barnabas is this is just humble, given over sort of ministry at its most basic level. And, and, and I'll say this on, on these four things that we talk through. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you either should be on the giving end, the receiving end, or ideally both of these. You should be receiving exhortation and teaching and, and having others who remain with you and serve you. You should be teaching, serving, remaining, exhorting others. That, that's the ideal situation is that both of these are going on in our lives simultaneously. Verse 23, the first thing Barnabas began to do, it says, when he got to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. First thing he does, exhorts. He comes alongside. That's literally what the word means. He's there to see them. Exhortation is not effective if we just sort of fly in at 10,000 feet and, and, and yell correction down to somebody and tell them what they should do. Exhortation, the, the biblical picture of exhortation is, is we come in and we see, we see where the person's at, we walk alongside, and then we speak to their needs. We speak encouragement and comfort as we, we enter into life with them. And that's what he's doing. He's exhorting. This is, this is the, the son of encouragement doing his thing. That's why he gets this nickname, is he comes in and, and doesn't stand aloof and sort of watch things and go, oh, we'll get around to ministry at some point. He sees God's grace and he says, I just, I just want to so encourage you. And what God is doing, that's what we are called to look like. When we see God's grace in another person's life, even in the smallest of ways, point it out. Praise God for what he's doing, but also tell that brother or sister, I, I see God at work in you. I, God, is, God has blessed me through you in this way. 
through, through what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're serving, what, how you teach, how you sing, whatever it might be, you, you are ministering to me. And that is God's grace at work in your life. We cannot do this. We cannot exhort others silently. Exhortation means speaking. There must be words. It is a verbal ministry that we are called that we would speak into one another's lives. And and verse 23 is very specific as an example. It says, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. There is a very simple example for us of what exhortation looks like. Barnabas clearly had taken seriously the teaching of Jesus Christ, which was as the seed of the gospel is scattered, you're going to see all different responses, and, and, and a fair number of those responses will end up just fading away. They, they will turn away. And so here, here is Barnabas into a situation where the gospel is new, fresh ground is being harvested, people are professing faith, and one of the, the early messages is, stay faithful, rest in him, be steadfast. This truth that you are professing, hold fast to it, believe it. Barnabas is not, he's not God. He's not perfect. I am sure that there were days when even the son of encouragement felt the hint of discouragement at some point and went through trials and needed others to speak to him. But that doesn't, that doesn't stop us from exhorting others. The fact that we're not perfect and we haven't mastered all these things. We're called to come alongside our brother and sister in Christ when they are in the midst of it and say, stand firm. God is faithful. He's not leaving you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Stand firm with resolute purpose or steadfast purpose. That's the, that's the picture here. It's basically saying purpose in your heart. You've started down this road and, and, and now purpose in your heart to remain on this road. Barnabas knew that it was not going to be long before these young believers face what we all face. Trials, temptations, challenges, disappointments. Other believers or professing believers who suddenly disappear or who do things that seem inexplicable. Hostility from sinners, the lure of the world, the enticements of the flesh. Barnabas knows this is, this is all coming. And if he's going to exhort them to be steadfast, he's going to be honest with them and say, this is what it is. You're still in the flesh. It's not going to always be easy. But stand firm. Rest in him. Believe him. Trust him with resolute purpose. He exhorted them. A lot of New Testament spiritual gifts, exhortation is one of them. And and most of the time with these kind of gifts, there are people in the body of believers who are specially gifted in these things. We we see God's grace in just an abundant way in in whatever their gifting seems to be. And so there are people you're thinking of, even as you're thinking about Barnabas, you think of that person is so gifted in exhortation. They, They seem to just be able to come along and speak into my life such words of comfort and encouragement. But I, I just want to tell you that while the, while the gifts of the Spirit are important and the body is given them and, and they're distributed among the body, we all are still called to this, this family ministry. That's why it's a household of God, the church. And, and, and what do you do with your siblings and your children and your parents? You, you, you encourage them. You, you encourage them to stand firm. You, you come alongside them. You care for them. You speak comfort to them. That's what we're called to do as siblings in the body of Christ. You can't do that without speaking, and you can't do that without remaining. I already said to you the word for exhortation is the idea of coming alongside 
And so it's not only a speaking, but it's remaining. Barnabas stays with the people. That's the second part of ministry here. He goes and he gets Saul and he comes back and they stay there for a year. It is not clear that Barnabas was sent to Antioch with any kind of commission other than to, there's reports of something happening, go check it out. And, and Barnabas gets there and God works in his heart and says, this is home for you for a while, bud. You're going to stay here and you are going to remain with these people. They need growth. And so you go and get Saul and you come back and, and you just stay put here. That word for exhortation is not only speaking, but it's proximity, it's nearness, it's coming alongside. Are you remaining with brothers and sisters in Christ? Is your life spent in close proximity to other believers? Now listen, I, that is, I know that question is almost bizarre right now in the culture that we're in. Close proximity, I can't do close proximity at all, right? That, that is, that's the struggle for us as believers because that is so contrary to everything we are called to in the New Testament, which is to abide with one another. It is incredibly challenging, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we need this interaction. We need engagement. We need to find ways to, to be alongside, to have communication with, to, to build into the lives of others. And we need other believers to be doing the same and coming alongside us, remaining, being intentional. One of the repeated themes in Acts is the early church coming together, breaking bread in fellowship. Still, I, I still go back to think that the Sunday night in March, before this all started, we were having a, having a meal together back here. And it seems like such a distant memory at this point that we all sat down with a big table of food and we ate together. And I don't, I don't have a, a simple, practical answer to all that, but I do know that Acts in the New Testament repeatedly pictures that we, we desperately need fellowship and communion with our God and with each other. We were meant to live in community, and Barnabas and Saul stay there. They, they understand that these young believers in Antioch cannot be isolated out of fellowship. It's not, hey, guys, sorry, good luck, we're moving on. It's how do, how do we remain with them and encourage them? He exhorted them, he stayed with them third, he taught them. It says he goes and gets Saul, and they come back. Um, verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. Christian life is about growing and maturing. It's not just about being at one point and staying there. The, the repeated picture of the Christian life is we move on from, from the child who drinks milk to the adult who eats meat. It is, it is substantial growth. It is a, a progression that comes from knowing God better, understanding more who he is, understanding the, the implications of the gospel, understanding more and more what it means for, for Christ to live in me. I watched a video just the other day from a, a counseling conference of a, of a preacher just spending time just talking about Christ in me and just some of the pictures in scripture and what it means to, to just sort of think about Christ in me. And, 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 and I find that's one of those truths that I I've not even come close to plumbing the depths of what that means to have Christ in me. And I, I, I'm, so I'm striving to keep learning and growing and understanding what that means. He's teaching them. He is striving to help them 
grow in their knowledge of God, their knowledge of sin, their knowledge of the spirit, their knowledge of sound doctrine. Our culture is, is big on self-sufficiency. Do it yourself. Go on YouTube. Figure it out. We were just doing a house project. And I have to say thank you to Bill Milne for saving me on, on, on this project. Because my dear wife was saying, just call Bill and ask him for help. And everything self-sufficient in me is like, I got this. And finally, I didn't have it. And he knocked it out in like a couple hours, what, what would have taken me the better part of a couple of days. But the whole Christian life is, is about this. Teaching, growing, learning, knowing that there's a, a believer who's, who's done this before, who's walked through this before, and I can get some wisdom from that person. They've applied some scriptures already to that part of their life that now they can help me learn. Saul and Barnabas stay and they teach. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We should be, again, some are particularly gifted in teaching, but that does not excuse those who are not gifted. We are called to be involved in relationships where we are receiving instruction to help us grow and mature, and we are giving wisdom and instruction to others to help them. As we take God's word in, it, the idea is that it remains there, that it transforms us, but that it then comes out and we speak it into the lives of others and help them grow. So Barnabas goes and he gets Saul. They come back and, and, and essentially not leaving these believers at the lowest common level. Yes, they've, they've understood the gospel. They believed in Jesus and they are saved. But now it's, what does it mean to walk in Christ? What is the Spirit's presence? What, what difference does that make? What is the, the Old Testament? How does it point to Christ, these scriptures that, that maybe you haven't thought about before? What, what does all this mean? And they stay and teach. He exhorted, he stayed, he taught, and finally he served them. Last part of this section, we, we saw the warning from the prophet who says there's a famine coming. It's in the days of Claudius. And this famine will be devastating throughout the land. God provides this, this warning and there is an immediate recognition, and it describes all of the disciples in this. We'll, we'll, give, we'll presume anyway some credit that God is working through Barnabas and Saul as the leaders. That as they, they get the word of the famine, one of the things they're able to do is look and go, listen, here in Antioch, central business hub, we'll probably get through this pretty well. Think, think in terms of, of the economic crisis and, and how Washington, D.C., how this area, some of you struggled mightily, but for the most part, this region probably did better than a lot of other areas of the country. And that same mentality is in their thinking at this point. We'll probably be okay through this. There's still a lot of trade and commerce and competition, and, and, and things won't get too crazy here. But, but in Judea, in the rural areas outside of Jerusalem, in, in that area where believers are a small minority that's already persecuted, they're going to struggle. This famine is, is going to devastate them, and it's going to be hard for them to be able to even afford food. And so they served them. They take the plenty from the church at Antioch, and before this famine can even begin to settle in and have its effects, they're already collecting an offering. And this is the trip that, that's referred to in Galatians 2 when it says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. This is Barnabas and Saul taking this offering now from Antioch up to Jerusalem to be distributed to the believers there. It is benevolence that is being supplied. Think about that. By a prophetic word, the church at Antioch is told there is this coming catastrophe, and it doesn't take long at all 
for the early believers, under the leadership of a guy like Barnabas, to say, how do we think beyond ourselves? Okay? We, yes, this is going to affect us in some way, and we need to be wise and, and careful and practical. But immediately the thought is, how do we care for others? What do, we, what do we do to serve others in this? How do we take from what God has provided and be good stewards and serve others? How do we use this impending disaster as an opportunity to love others? And isn't that the nature of what it means to be part of the household of God? This, this serving others part is being attentive. It's, it's, it's being alongside one another so that I get a glimpse into your life and see that, that there is struggle, there is hurt, there is need in some way. And as a body of believers, we then find practical, helpful ways to come alongside and, and to serve, to join with others. Maybe, maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's fixing a, a house repair. Maybe it's watching kids. Maybe it's calling someone who is lonely. Maybe it's providing aid in a time of need. That's what we do as the body of Christ and serving one another. We serve, we teach, exhort, we remain. As I said to you at the start, this is not a, this is not one of those flashy sort of passages that you stop and go, wow, this is something I have never thought of or ever seen before. This is local church ministry. This is a faith, this faithful servants, Cyprus and Cyrene, who say, they need to hear the gospel in Antioch. I'm gonna, we're going to go and we're going to preach Christ to lost sinners in Antioch. And then a faithful servant like Barnabas who comes along and who God uses and who stays and who simply exhorts and teaches and serves. And he is there for them as a model, an example, somebody who is showing them Christ while he is teaching them Christ. And I, and I would submit to you, the simplicity that we see in the book of Acts is what we see in the New Testament, and that is godly people doing godly things. It's, it's people who have been, by God's grace, imbued with character that is humble, that is service-oriented, that is kind, that is good. It's not our nature, but that's because of Christ in us now doing those things, doing the things that God has called us to do, to serve, to teach, to exhort, to remain. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for showing us men like Barnabas, not that he is heroic because, Lord, we recognize that Barnabas is who he was because of you. You saved him. You took his perhaps winsome personality and, and used it for the spread of your kingdom. Took a guy who perhaps was comfortable speaking to others and stepping out and, and turned him into the son of encouragement. And it is a, a wonderful reminder to us of how mightily you use us. Lord, we are not gathered here as an assortment of apostles or miracle workers awaiting visions and signs. We have the truth in Scripture. And what you have called us to is a, a diligent life of service patterned after the ultimate servant, who is Jesus Christ. What we've seen in Barnabas' life was modeled for us perfectly in the one who divested himself of all of the glories and majesty of heaven in order to come and to be the servant of all, to wash the feet of his disciples and to give his life as a ransom for sinners. 
Now, Father, you have called your people, those who are trusting in Christ, to, to be like him, to exhort and love and serve, remain like him. We need help. We need help to do this. It's, it's not in our nature sometimes to be inconvenienced and to remain someplace that wasn't on our schedule that we didn't anticipate, to, to suddenly make home with with strangers and, and to come alongside them, whatever that might look like in our lives. We, we know that there are areas where we struggle to do these things, and so we need help. We pray for your spirit to be at work in us, helping us to grow more and more like Christ. Father, I thank you, I, and, and I join my brothers and sisters as some of the things we've thought about today, I pray, would bring encouragement to us as we think about those brothers and sisters who have been like Barnabas in our lives, who have shown Christ-like humility and have served us and taught us and encouraged us in time of need. Thank you for those people. Thank you for the clear evidence of your grace in their lives to us. You have allowed us to experience your grace time and time again through other believers who have encouraged and strengthened and spoken fitting words at just the right time. Pray that your spirit would help us now to, to be those kinds of servants, to speak into the lives of others, to, to not be fearful, to not be so timid that we miss opportunities, but that in humility we would desire to, to point people to your grace and to our great Savior. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of the gospel that draws us together as a worshiping, loving household of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.